This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. If you are joining us on YouTube and wish to listen to this program as a podcast, you may click the link below to your favorite podcast platform. This talk is with Lucy Monroe, Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Literature at King's College, London. We will cover her career as a literary historian, and we'll begin with a look at Lucy's most recent book, Shakespeare in the Theater, The King's Men. This series is funded with institutional support from Aoyama Gakuin University, and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. It is just our pleasure. It really is our pleasure. On your university website, you say that, and I'm quoting Lucy, the thread that runs through your research is an interest in the dynamic relationship between old and new in literary cultures and their afterlives. I really like that notion in your work and also the focus in your recent book entitled Shakespeare in the Theater, The King's Men, in which you show us in splendid detail and with superb archival findings, much, as you say, about how the actors and the company as an entity shaped Shakespeare and other dramatic poets of the time. I wanted to explore your book with you right off the bat, but and then get to some of your other recent work. But for our audience, could we start with an overview of the prior acting companies in the Elizabethan period before the King's Men and mark the importance of these companies for actors and playwrights for everyone and something about what the King's Men were before they became the King's Men. So immediately before the, the King's Men, the King's Men are the Lord Chamberlain's men. Um, so rather than being patronized by the king, they're patronized by a, a leading politician. And this is kind of the, the model that, that holds across most of the 1590s that the most prominent companies aren't sponsored by the monarch, they're sponsored by um, leading noblemen. Um, this is after a, a very, very important company patronized by the queen herself has kind of faded a bit from view in the early 1590s. And two companies in particular, the Lord Chamberlain's men and the Admiral's men emerge um, around 1594. Um, and Various other companies emerge around a little bit later, um, but those two companies are probably the dominant pair of companies in this period in terms of, of what are sometimes slightly misleadingly known as adult companies. Um, so companies that are a mixture of, of adult men and then um, boys and youths who are playing female and, and juvenile roles. Um, and there's not much going on in the other parts of the actual economy, the children's companies in, the, the sort of mid to later 1590s either. Um, so the Chamber's men kind of emerge and become fairly dominant fairly quickly. Um, and they, they seem to position themselves very carefully so that they can become the King's men when James takes over. Um, the theatre companies are important, I think, because they're the, they're the sort of bodies that are commissioning plays, that are paying for plays. And this is, I don't think you can overstate the extent to which this is a commercial enterprise as well as a, an aesthetic 
enterprise um, in this yeah. period. Yeah. And so if you think of a company like the Chamberlain's Men, um, they're commissioning plays from dramatists. They also have, luckily for them, a very good resident dramatist, um, Shakespeare, um, who is a member of the playing company as well as writing plays for them. Um, and this happens in the other companies as well. So there are members of, of the Admiral's Men who also write plays, for example, although not with any degree of the, not with the same degree of prominence as, as Shakespeare. Um, so you have a system in which plays are being commissioned by, by playing companies and are being performed in a sort of rotating repertory. So you don't get long runs of a single play being performed. Um, a really popular play might get performed more than once in, in say a 10 day cycle, but it's relatively relatively unusual for that to happen unless it's a really popular play. Um, so companies are, are thinking about what audiences want. They're thinking about a, a balance within a repertory as well. Um, so the Chamberlain's men who become the King's men, um, you know, are performing plays by Shakespeare alongside a whole host of other dramatists, sadly a lot of which is lost. Yeah, yeah. I'm, there, I think that I'm right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. There are a lot of details in your work and throughout, as you know, too, you've uh, consulted scholars like Dutton and uh, Andrew, Richard Dutton and Andrew Gurr, and also mm -hmm. done extraordinary archival work. I am uh, wild by what you have found. But I think in our minds, uh, the history kind of kind of begins in the 1570s with this unprecedented, really, this, this explosion of theater activity in public theaters, right, with the curtain and uh, with the curtain and the theater. And then, of course, more theaters. And and that's when our records it's sort of dodgy in that period. But that's when our records show us you've worked on lost plays. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, show us that there's this theatrical activity where there's a kind of pivoting, maybe from the public stage to court and a, a rotation, as you were talking about, and then uh, more and more certification of these companies. So there's there's a good 20 year history. And I, I think I'm locating the Queen's men to the 1580s, uh, if my memory's right. That's when. They, they really want so this this had all been kind of established and of course Shakespeare's company is the Lord Chamberlain's men but then James comes to the throne and this could have gone sideways on these guys right I mean it, the the king is the king but he says no we're going to do this and we're going to have the king's men which is uh, a way I want to lead into your book uh it's starting at 1603 yeah, so I, I love the way you're talking about this and, and stressing the fact that this is, it's kind of a long history. Um, and the problem with writing a, a book like, like my King's Men book is that you, it's written for a series, you have a limited word count. Um, and so you have to make choices. And one of the choices that I made quite early on was not to do a kind of a sort of Shakespeare company book, um, which you know other scholars have done. Um, but to really kind of focus in on the King's Men as a particular phase mm -hmm. in Shakespeare's relationship with the playing company who he's a member of and who performs his work. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. The story goes 
back, you know, at least as far as the 1560s and, and the Red Lion, which involved um, John Brain, who goes on to collaborate with James Burbage in building the theatre. So there, there are kind of strands that go back. And you can obviously trace public performance and large scale public performance back even further than that. But I think you're absolutely right that what emerges in the, the 1570s, we get this kind of rush of playhouse building, you know, particularly in the later mid to late 1570s. And then a sort of period of, of sort of consolidation in terms of playhouses in, in the 1580s. So not so much going on in terms of the actual building or, or conversion of new playhouses, but a kind of emergence of, of really important companies in that period. Um, and that sense that companies are beginning to, to adjust their practices sort of in combination with having this bigger range of performance spaces available in, in London. Um, and you've got the children's companies as well emerging in the 1570s as a, a more commercialized kind of force. So yeah, there is that sense that, that things are kind of building in particular ways. I mean, I don't want to be too sort of suggest yeah. there's a kind of straight line, but there's certain tendencies that are coming through yeah. in the 50s, 80s and 90s. And then in 1603, you know, the two most prominent companies at that point are the Chamberlain's men and the Admiral's men. Um, and you've got Worcester's men who are also really important around that period. Um, and I think, I don't know how calculated James's patronage of theatre was, how much it was swayed by the influence of particular English courtiers. Um, but it probably could have gone either way. You know, the Admiral's men are prominent, they're important, they've got Edward Lane, they've got a brand new theatre, um, um, The Fortune, um, you know, it probably could have gone either way. Maybe they could have been the King's men and the Chamberlain's men could have been, you know, Queen Anna's men or Prince Henry's men. Um, so it's Prince Henry's men probably because that's the one that went to the Admiral's, Admiral's men. So yeah, there is a kind of, there's a long history that gets in there, but then it is slightly kind of, it, it's not written in stone. It could go either way. It seems inevitable, inevitable to us maybe, yeah. that Shakespeare's company are the ones that are going to be the King's men. But I don't know if it would have been so obvious in 1603 that that's the way that things would have gone. Yeah. Well, with all of the engaging records that you bring forth in your book, uh, and I, let's stay with your book for a while, coming in from the outside, I am coming from a long history, many of us are, of seeing Shakespeare as the uh, the genius, the individual writer, perhaps you know, in his study, and that's probably true, you know, putting together. But when we go through the work, let's say, the, uh, of Tiffany Stern and some other scholars where the, you put together, you, you, you can see how um, this was a patchwork. I think that's that's Tiffany's. Uh, uh, in fact, I know that's, that, that's how she describes it. But then again, you have a kind of patchwork of putting together a um, a viable com company without the protections of a trade guild, without any of the protections of being noble or whatnot. These people have to travel. You couldn't just walk around and <laughs> it's hard for us to imagine. You couldn't just walk around England and not be attached to somebody. You know, you could be arrested for vagrancy, right? So they managed to get this kind of credibility and a very fine credibility it is to be, you know, uh, to have your patron as the king. And then that begins to shape I would say Shakespeare's later work, but perhaps 
even how we began to view how how we may view Shakespeare now, not the individual writer coming in and uh, saying, oh, here's my play acted, right? That this company is shaping how he is forming his plays and how he is putting together and and they're doing it in a very commercial way, uh, as you point out in many places in your book. And that's not, that's not to say that uh, in a shallow way, but they are very focused on performance and, and getting people to the theater and pleasing the court. Yeah, and I think they are, they are savvy. Um, I mean, a lot of people involved in the theater in this period are very savvy. Um, but you have figures like Richard Burbage I think Richard Burbage is, is really important. You have these very savvy figures within these companies. Um, so think people like Edward Alain, Philip Henslow, you know, across the board, there are these very, um, as I say, savvy people who know how to negotiate the business side of things. And Burbage is interesting because he's, by 1603, he's the leading actor in The King's Men, but he also um, part owns or is treated as the owner of one playhouse, the Blackfriars, which isn't being used by the King's Men at that point, but will be later on. Um, and he's a major player in the Globe. Um, so he and his brother have half of the Globe lease, and then the other half of the Globe lease is, is shared out between various, at that point, members of the King's Men. Um, so for someone like Burbage, I think what we would think of as the aesthetics of theatre, I think were absolutely important to him. But I think he was also very aware of the, the business and social calculations that were, were necessary in order to be successful. And I think Shakespeare in some ways is similar. I think there's no way that I would want to write the aesthetic side out of this. I think there's experimentation. I think there's a desire to, to, to kind of push things in aesthetic terms within the plays that we see the King's Men performing. Um, and it's not just not just Shakespeare. I think other dramatists have similar kind of desires to shake things up aesthetically. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, it's it's it is very commercial, um, and they are thinking about audiences. Um, they're thinking about the the impact the particular plays might make. But I think they're also thinking kind of collectively about the repertory and about you know what the what a play looks like alongside the other plays in the repertory. And again, that's partly aesthetic. It's having a group of plays that you perform and that you're proud of. Um, but it's also a commercial thing because if you, if you get the balance right in terms of the kind of plays you're putting on, the kind of roles that you're writing for your leading actors, the kind of chemistry that that group have in performance, then audiences will like it and, um, probably the master of the revels will like it and you'll get the core performances. So I, I see the two things as being really tightly intertwined. Oh, yes. And in your research, you have recovered a good bit about the roles that were played by certain actors. And I, I think there's not much in the Elizabethan or the 16th century, but there's several documents in the 17th century where you can track who played what. Uh, and we can, we learn uh, about these actors and, well, I mean, the biggest thing is they're extraordinarily talented, uh, that they may have traded out roles, that they had to learn uh, what I'm getting, enormous numbers of lines and be ready on an instinct to revive a play, to bring another play in, to play it, you know, over again uh, from 
uh, public to uh, maybe court or a private playhouse when Blackfriars uh, started working up uh, or semi-private, I think is the right way to put Blackfriars. But yes, the incredible talent of these people who uh, who are part of these companies. Yeah, and it's... I mean, the work with, with Castless and things, I mean, I've not discovered anything here. I'm sort of bringing together um, earlier research and, and just looking across this group of, of, unfortunately, not that many plays where we have detailed information about casting. And there's a cluster in the late 1620s, early 1630s. Um, and scholars like John Astington have done kind of fantastic work with, with some of these yeah. plays. Um, uh, T.J. King, who has this amazingly kind of comprehensive sort of overview of the the kinds of of um of things that come out of, of looking at these um these cast lists and, and information about casting that appears in some some playhouse manuscripts um and so there's this cluster in the late 1620s early 1630s and we can see various plays by by people like philip massinger and john fletcher you know where you can track the casting in a lot more detail um, and then just little little frustrating kind of hints from the earlier period. So various roles that we know that that Burbage played. Um, there's an elegy which lists some of his roles, which unsurprisingly lists the tragic roles because why why would you mention the comic roles in an elegy? Right. Um, but we do we do know which roles he played in a couple of Johnson plays because somebody wrote names against um, the cast lists and the actor lists in a copy of the first Ben Johnson folio, which is now in Huntington. Um, and so we know the roles that, that Burbage played and, and the various other actors played um, in The Alchemist and Volpone. Um, and, and yes, I think there is this, this immense level of skill. The Kingsmen get to a point where they're prominent enough that they, they are kind of the company that actors mostly transfer into. Um, there's an interesting case of an actor called Richard Perkins who comes into the King's Men in the 1620s and then leaves fairly quickly, but that's quite unusual. Um, it's usually, the King's Men is usually kind of the end point for, mm -hmm. certainly for actors who are established. Um, and, and yes, that sense that, that plays can be brought in and out of repertory. These people have very trained memories, obviously. Um, but one that really struck me when I was working on the book was um, there's a revival of Pericles uh -huh. very shortly after Richard Burbage's death. Um, so much so that, um, and I'm going to go a complete blank on which particular Herbert it was, um, but one prominent politician, one of the Herberts, um, you know, writes a letter saying, oh, yes, they, they performed um, Pericles at court and, and I couldn't go because I was still grieving my my old friend Burbage. Uh. Um, and so it must be Burbage's replacement, who's an actor called Joseph Taylor, who's one of the, the really key figures in the King's Men in the, you know, 16, from about 1619 right through to the 1640s. Um, and so he must have come in very, very quickly and you know, learned this very large role, moved into this, this company and, you know, been in that production of Pericles at court. Yeah. Uh, well, you move onward to the afterlife, really, of Shakespeare. And uh, the, the, the afterlife was sort of beginning during his life in, in the sense of this company shaping itself and being prepared 
in some way, I don't know if they saw it or not, but being prepared in some way to continue onward after after Shakespeare left. So the, the machine was built, it was ready to run forward. And there's this whole period that we tend for ages have tend to overlooked between that period and the, of course, the uh, Civil War, whenever the, you know, the theaters were closed. But there's this rich history, because I think people were better at keeping keeping records uh, by the uh, early to moving toward the mid 17th century, that there's just more there when you start looking. Uh, and particularly when you get into, uh, you know, later James uh, Jac Jacobean, uh, Caroline drama, uh, and you bring that up, you, you, you make that, well, in my mind, when I was reading, I'm saying, okay, this thing is carrying forward, right? And it's going to take some pretty strong Puritans to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the 1620s and 30s. Um, and then the, that very early 1640s bit before the before the Civil War kind of limits things. Um, I mean, performances do go on to the 1640s, but but sporadically and and in the face of, of immense hostility. Um, so there is a, a sort of hiatus in terms of the the commercial theatre being able to operate at full strength in the, yeah. the 1640s and 50s. Um, but the 1620s and 30s, I think, you know, traditionally have been overlooked quite a bit, um, and you know. In the 1980s, the work of Martin Butler was incredibly important in mm. sort of bringing Caroline drama kind of back yeah. to to some sort of prominence. Um, and you've had people like um, like Julie Sanders, um, Thomas L. Berger had this this fantastic little essay on the publication of Shakespeare in the, the Caroline period um, years and years ago. Um, and there's work going on at the moment. People like Owen Price who are sort of interested in in revivals. Um, you know, and that's just a couple of examples of. of sort of important sort of work that's been going on. Um, but they are overlooked, I think, because it's it, it's that kind of point after Shakespeare's death. Um, there were some very strong critical cliches about the, the decline or the decadence of the drama, kind of as you go towards the, the Civil War, very kind of teleological kind of narratives, sort of almost that the theatre deserved to be closed because it had been declining off after the death of Shakespeare, um, which is, I think, kind of nonsense. Um, and, and you do start to get these, these interesting bits of information. I mean, the, the records are patchy throughout the period, so you get clusters of more detailed information that's come through about a particular aspect of theatrical culture in different points in time. Um, and it's very haphazard in terms of what's survived. Um, so some things survive because a particular official's papers have happened to survive, for instance. So there are bits in, in various regional archives or in the Bodleian or, or various other places. Um, and even the stuff that's in the National Archives hasn't survived completely. It's often very, very patchy. Um, and often where you have a date, you don't have a title, and where you have a title, you don't have a date. And so it becomes tricky to kind of patch these things together. Um, but one of the things I was interested in doing with this book, and, and when I was commissioned to write it, um, you know, looking at the, the series brief, was thinking about the King's Men from 1603 to the early 1640s, and, and actually slightly beyond in the end, um, and thinking about what happens to Shakespeare's plays 
um, so the plays that are kind of written during that period, you know, what's happening at the moment that they're first performed, but then also kind of tracking these, um, these stories, you know, these trajectories that particular plays have. And one of the things that I did quite early on was to um, just put together some lists of revivals, you know, as far as I could piece them together from the information that we have, and to look and see which plays from the information we have, which, as I say, is nowhere near complete, which plays have the the most sustained performance histories that we can see and, and almost kind of using those as a starting point so not taking the plays that that we necessarily think of as central but looking at the ones that have these these yeah. strong kind of afterlives which is so yes Othello but also Pericles and Penny yes. VIII. um yes the winter's tale um yes but maybe not the choices that we would make no, no, surprisingly, no. So, and, and some choices that were non-Shakespearean choices that uh, um, Beaumont and Fletcher, uh, and or yeah. Fletcher in particular, yeah, yeah. One of the, um, the the sort of the brief for the series is to think about, you know, is to look at companies, to look at the work of directors, and to think about Shakespeare's the kind of place of Shakespeare's work within a repertory or within a kind of um, a career. Um, so part of the brief of the series is is to think contextually and to think comparatively um, to look at the you know what happens to Shakespeare alongside you know either things that are being written new at a particular moment or other plays that have long histories of revivals Um, so I look at Othello and the Alchemist together partly because they they're two of the plays that have the most sustained um, performance histories among the plays of the King's Men um, and then for a whole, a whole lot of other reasons but one of the initial thoughts was oh these are two of the most popular plays as far as we can tell Yeah, you know what happens if you put them together yeah yeah and it comes to Othello it's uh, you know over and over again Othello, uh, Othello. Mm. and uh, well what I would like to do is pivot a little bit and talk about playhouses. We've been talking about actors and the companies, uh, and uh, and you've done work on playhouses too, the Blackfriars in particular. And it's always difficult for me because you, you have this period, they're, they're the boys' companies in the early on, and then they stop, and then they come back roughly around the time, I think Shakespeare is mentioning them in Hamlet, you know, is when they're sort of coming back. And then there, uh, there are playhouses. So there's there's the problem with getting Blackfriars started. There's the problem with the theater that turns into the Globe around what I think it's uh, 1598. And then the Globe itself burns. And then there's another Globe, I believe, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, let's do talk about this and particularly Blackfriars. Uh, you uh, have looked into ownership there. And that is fascinating stuff. Yeah, so this was, when I was saying earlier that with the cast lists, it's, you know, it's not really my original research, it's kind of bringing together, um, you know, work that exists in that area and thinking about it again. Um, but the Blackfriars stuff um, is actually based on, on some documents that haven't really been looked at very much of at all. Um, so some records from the Court of Chancery um, which some of them, as far as I know, the only people also to have seen them are Charles William Wallace and, and Hilda Bergen Wallace um, about 100 years ago. 
Um, oh, Wallace. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And there's some extraordinary stories about it. Oh, about wow. It. Um, you know, and they're in London in the early 20th century, um, working through particular sets of records in the um, National, what's now the National Archives, then the Public Record Office, um, and the, the library actually, or the building, which is now the library of my own university, King's College London, um, oh, okay. on, on Chancery Lane. Um, and, and yes, just doing absolutely extraordinary work. And, and they're the people, for, you know, the reason why we know about um, Shakespeare's involvement in a suit in the Court of Requests um, that he was a witness in, um, the one that Charles Nichol writes about in his book on Shakespeare on Silver Street. Yeah, um, yeah. And so um, there was one record in particular relating to the Blackfriars that I was in the National Archives towards the end of the day, and I just ordered something up on the off chance um, because it said on the catalogue it was Evans versus Kirkham. Um, and Kirkham isn't a very common name. The two names in conjunction was intriguing. And it had, it's filed amongst the Caroline records. Yeah. So it ought to be out of period. Um, but I ordered it up um, and found that it was a suit. Um, it was Henry Evans who leased the second Blackfriars Playhouse from Richard okay. Burbage um, and his son-in-law, Alexander Hawkins, involved in, in fact, two lawsuits that had been um, tied together for some reason um, against Edward Kirkham, who was one of their... Um, they're sort of co-investors, um, collaborators in the Blackfriars um, and the company that performed there, the children's company. Um, and it was this lawsuit involving um, investment in the Blackfriars that also involved Ben Johnson and John Marston. Um, so okay. there's this moment when I'm sitting in the, the National Archives and there's Ben Johnson's name on this document in front of me. Oh. Um, and then a couple of months later, I was at the Huntington Library looking at the Wallace's papers um, and found a reference to it there. So as far as I could tell, they were the only people who had looked at it, but all they'd done was make a note about it and they hadn't yeah. clearly hadn't had time to go back to it. Um, and it's one of the markers of the, the, the Wallace's research that they published or he published. Yeah, they were looking for something else. Books. They were looking yeah. for something else. Now, let's yeah. date these. The first Black Friars, where do we date the first Black Friars? So the, yeah, so there and are two the playhouses in the, well, actually, eventually three different playhouse schemes um, in the Black Friars precinct, um, just outside the, the city walls. Um, and this is an old monastery precinct. And when the monastery was devolved, it basically opened the whole thing up as real estate. Yes. Um, so you end up with a lot of property speculation, a lot of redevelopment. Um, and in 1590s, no, 1576, um, a man called Richard Farrant, um, who's a prime master, um, leases um, a set of rooms um, in the Blackfriars precinct um, from a man called William Moore. Um, and that playhouse is in operation until 1584, um, when um, Moore ejects the, the tenants who are then there by that point, who involve, include another choir master, William Hunnis, and a man called Henry Evans, who I've just been talking about in relation to the um, second Blackfriars and the playwright, John Lilly. Um, and also the Earl of Oxford is involved. So there's a company that's patronized by the Earl of Oxford that perform in the first Blackfriars. And then that playhouse gets shut down in 1584. Yeah. Fast forward to about 10 years later and James Burbage, who has built the theater um, with his partner and brother-in-law, John Brain, 
also gets an idea about having a playhouse in the Blackfriars. And he buys outright a set of rooms for more, um, a different set of rooms. So in a slightly different part of the precinct. Um, And he converts them into a playhouse. Um, And the bit that he converts into a playhouse seems to have been the old Parliament Hall of the Blackfriars. Um, This is bigger than the first Blackfriars, probably quite a bit grander. And James Burbage seems to have been planning to put an adult playing company in it, probably the company that his son is performing in, although that's tended to be an assumption that's made. Um, And I know, I remember talking to Holger Simon about it and him saying, you can't be absolutely sure that this is what he was planning, Um, but probably planning (laughs) to put an adult company in it. Um, And then the the residents of Blackfriars kick up a fuss. Um, They're prepared to tolerate a children's company, but they're not prepared to tolerate an adult company probably because adult companies at this point seem to be performing more frequently. They also don't quite have the snob value of the children's companies. The children's companies at this point are still very much linked to, to choir schools. Um, yeah. Choir schools in particular, but education kind of more broadly. There's something more respectable. There is, I think. Although yeah. the histories of some of the children's companies are not, not especially. They're not respectable especially. at all. Uh, Lucy, the, the uh, plays, the plays are the, the material. Um, it just mm, is eye-catching what they were mm. asking these uh, boys to perform. Yeah, it's... Uh, Ovidian it's, material, that sort of thing, yeah. It's not children's theatre. No, it's, it really it's isn't. It's theatre performed by, by boys, um, yeah. but it's not, it's not kind of children's literature as we would think of it at all. And then there's not the same division between children and, and adults reading in this period. I mean, there's an amazing anecdote with um, Abraham Cooley talking about reading The Fairy Queen as a small, bo- a small boy. And that being the thing that made him want to be a poet. Um, mm. and, you know, and we wouldn't think of the Fairy Queen as kind of children's reading either. Um, no. So attitudes around um, around what's suitable for children are very different in this period. Um, but yeah, so what happens with the second Blackfriars is that the residents of Blackfriars kick up a fuss. James Burbage seems to be forbidden to use it by an adult company. Um, he dies not that long after and the playhouse is inherited. Um, and it seems to have been treated always as Richard's, Richard mm. Burbage's, although mm. Cuthbert, his brother, was the older son and, and would routinely, um, wouldn't usually have inherited the property. But what seems mm. to happen is that Cuthbert gets the, the other property in Blackfriars and, and Richard gets the, the theatre. And in 1600, they lease it out to Henry Evans, um, who'd been involved in the first Blackfriars. Um, and Evans um, has that lease um, until 1608. Um, there are various political controversies around the place of that company, um, including things like Eastwood Ho, um, the play by John Ben Johnson and George Chapman and John Marston, um, a play called The Isle of Golds by John Day, um, a play called Philitas by Samuel Daniel, um, which is especially unfortunate because Daniel had been um, set up as the person licensing the company and even one of his plays is getting them into trouble. And then finally in 1608, they perform two plays that annoy the authorities, one that really annoys the French ambassador and one that really annoys the king um, and they get shut down. Um, and in fact, all the theatres get shut down very briefly. And then there's a, a very, very bad outbreak of plague 
um, and Evans at that point. All right, the shutdown. Exactly. The shutdown date is roughly when the uh, around Easter, sixteen oh eight. Sixteen oh eight, and then plague yeah. hits. Then the plague hits. There's little if no um, acting of public plays permitted between you know in later sixteen oh eight. Pretty much the whole of sixteen oh nine. They might have got a bit in towards the end of the year, um, and during so by I think that summer Evans gives up the lease um, and Richard Burbage at this point thinks, okay, well, maybe I can put the King's men in there after all, maybe things have changed enough. And so he sets up a new lease um, in 1608. Um, and again, as with the globe brings in some of the King's men as, as shareholders. Um, also giving a share to Henry Evans's son, Thomas, um, which is part of a kind of um, sweetening the deal for Evans giving the lease back. And either in very late 1609 or early 1610, the King's men start performing in the Blackfriars. And, and there are various complaints from the residents of Blackfriars at various points, kind of running through the, the 1600s, 1610s, 20s, 30s. Um, yeah. But none of them are successful. And so the King's men keep that, um, that foothold in the Blackfriars um, right the way through, but they don't give up the globe. They keep the two playhouses working in tandem. And this is a really interesting decision. Um, Andrew Gers argued there's a kind of nostalgia to it that they can't, or a sentiment to it, that they can't quite bear to give up the globe. But I actually think it's more calculated than that. I think it's, I think they do have a sense that there are different audiences that they can capture if they have the two players. Yeah, yeah there, there's, all right. So we're talking about the globe, the first globe before it burned. Initially the six, first globe, yeah. Uh, 13, um, 16, 13, I believe, right? And so Blackfriars for a period there after the plague, Blackfriars and the globe are just running, you know, full, full steam. And it does seem that the outdoor theater might've been more, uh, you know, more amenable to summer productions where, you know, during the winter, it'd be very difficult to, uh, and that the Blackfriars, you know, stoke up a fire or something and, and have people come inside. So there does seem, I, I've read this and, and I'm not sure, I'm sure there's a big argument out there about it that I'm kind of dipping into with, you know, kind of ingenuously here, but there, there's there's part of the season. Of course, there's the court season, the winter uh, season at court. So how all this fits together, I'm not sure. But it seems to have kept people busy year round, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I mean the pattern seems to be that they that they use the the Blackfriars in the winter and the Globe in the summer, and there mm. seems to be a point around sort of May time. Um, and one of the reasons that that we think this is the case is where some of the licensing records have survived from the 1620s and 30s. Um, and these are things that have survived from lost documents. They've been transcribed by 19th century theatre historians. Some of those will name the playhouse for which something was licensed as well as the, um, as well as the company. Um, and so you get these records that say, you know, so-and-so licensed for the globe. Um, and, and those all cluster in the summer months, usually starting around May. Um, yeah. And what I think is happening is that there's a, there's a kind of summer audience that they can capture with performing at the Globe and get a larger number of people in, in those kind of summer months. And there's an evidence 
which is interesting if you sort of put it all together um, of play of new plays being licensed for the globe, which suggests that there is a particular sort of use that the globe has to the company. Um, but it's interesting, you know, that the the admiral's men who become Prince Henry's men, they have the Fortune Playhouse, mm-hmm. um, and and Edward Alain, who owns it, sort of occasionally sort of dabbles in indoor theatres as well. So there's a third Blackfriars Theatre project um, mm-hmm. around 16, 15, 16, 16, um, mm-hmm. which Alain is involved in and Philip Henso is involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alain never really seems to have thought, or, or the, the Admiral's men, Prince Henry's men, never really seem to have thought of having two playhouses running in tandem. Mm-hmm. And even someone like, like Christopher Beeston, who has an involvement in the Red Bull and the cockpits, Mm-hmm. it's difficult to see when he was a cockpit whether he was thinking of having a dual playhouse kind of structure or whether he was wanting to move companies wholesale and actually what ends up happening is that that Beeston is kind of just involved in companies of both over a particular sort of period okay now this is very selfish on my part but while I have you on the line uh, I, I know quite a lot about the winter performances at court, but I don't know enough about what other court performances, whether they're just sort of on demand that the uh, queen or king can just say, listen, we want something. You guys get up here and perform for us. We have the French ambassadors in town. Get up here. Is, was that the way it was at any time? That... It's a really good question. I haven't looked enough at those that those that those records to be able to to give you a definitive kind of answer. Yeah. My sense is that I think you're right that that you have the the very established winter sort of season, which starts um, sort of around All Saints Day, so starts around the end of October, beginning of November, yeah. um, and then runs through um, through to the spring. Um, yeah. But then you do see odd performances at other times of year as well. Um, and some of those are linked to the visits of ambassadors um, and other kind of important events, visits of, of um, people like Christian IV of Denmark, who's, who's Anna of Denmark, um, James's wife's brother. So my sense is that you have the, the main kind of court season, but then you might have more ad hoc performances. Yeah, boy, they're the king's well. they're the king's men. Mm-hmm. Right. So and the king, I can't imagine that his his love of drama, which apparently he had, uh, along with Elizabeth, that he would say, OK, it's now it, we're into spring and we're not going to have any more plays until October or whatnot. Right. Uh, it's his company, not his. In fact, that's an interesting thing that you bring out It's patronized, but their ownerships, you know, of course, are divided among various people in very complex ways, but I'm sure, you know, he, he would feel comfortable calling them in anytime he felt like he wanted to see or hear a play or had a guest in. Uh, it just makes sense that way, it seems to me, but the records, yeah. it's hard to find the records. There are complexities in the records as well that we, that we have reasonably complete runs of some records, particularly for the Kings, for um, the sort of main expenditure, but the Queen, Queen Anna had her own household and, and Queen Henrietta Maria later on, um, and households are set up for first Henry and then Charles um, in the 1610s, and far less of that accounting 
has actually survived. There are odd little fragments of accounting for Anna that suggests that she is also commissioning performances and not just from the company that companies that have her name, but from other companies as well. So if we had more of those records, we'd probably have a, an even more complete kind of picture of, um, of the way that, that the Royal patronage is working. Um, The other thing about James, which I find hilarious is that he, he seems to have kind of approved of drama kind of generally, but every now and again, you'd get these, you get, you get these kind of anecdotes about him being ferociously bored by a particular play <laughs> or, or just, just fed up by the whole thing. And there's a funny anecdote not that long after he comes to the throne, which, which says that, that Anna and Henry are actually sort of more sort of genuinely interested in drama than he is. Um, but it's obviously, it's impossible at this remove really to tell exactly what he thought. But there are some funny anecdotes for him. I mean, admittedly, these are plays at Oxford and you know, places like Oxford and Cambridge that go on for about five hours and are in Latin. Um, although he'd have liked that sort of thing in some ways, I think. Um, but there are anecdotes about him falling asleep and sort of saying, what, what do these people think of me? Yeah. And his son, as you remark in your book, uh, had some uh, critique. He would read uh, the play beforehand. And uh, they were being a little bit too frisky about the tax situation, even though they were talking about the Spanish king and not the English king. Uh, that was Charles, right, who picked that. That's Charles, first. Yeah. yeah. That's um, Henry Herbert, the Master of the Revels, um, uh, occasionally wrote down responses. In- insolence? Is, is that the word? Particularly Insolence, yeah. yeah. Um, particularly contentious play. I mean, I don't think he- Herbert took everything to the king, but every now and again, he seems to have done so. And occasionally there were attempts to go above Herbert's head. So there's a Davenant play called The Wits, where Davenant has court connections and manages to go above Herbert's head and take it to the king. And Herbert is very annoyed, I think, that that Davenant is trying to to sort of get around his authority. Um, And Herbert also writes down responses when plays are performed at court. So he'll sometimes say, you know, well liked by the king or well liked by the king and queen or very well liked or not liked occasionally. Right, right. Yes. Uh, (laughs) What does all that mean? Uh, And I'm thinking, you know, it draws us to Midsummer Night's Dream, the uh, the the approval that the troop gets, there's a sort of vagueness and, uh, you know, uh, in the way the Duke d- dismisses the players, right? You know, there seems to be a fairly honorable dismissal, but... Um, My favourite is the, um, there's a point in the 1630s where the, t- where the Taming of the Shrew and um, the Woman's Prize or the Tamer Tamed, which is Fletcher's kind of, response or mock sequel or have you um, like to think of it in which Catherine has died and Petruccio was married for a second time and his wife new wife tames him so you get the tables being turned on Petruccio um, and Herbert writes down the responses and he says that the Taming the Shoe was liked um, and the Tamer Tamed was very well liked. So, <laughs> so yeah as it progresses uh, oh that's very good. That's very, very good. Well, all right, let's move into lost things and the the work you you uh, published in the 
the excellent edition uh, that uh, Nuts and Rosalind Nutson and uh, uh, Dave McGinnis and uh, uh, Stegel, uh, Matthew Stegel uh, put out. The title here is Lost in the Literary Culture of Shakespeare's Time. But they, uh, uh, Rosalind has been working on this for ages. And of course, uh, uh, all of them have. And uh, they've done some extraordinarily fine work. I worked it's a little amazing. bit with David on the uh, on the website, and I just did it sort of as a, I don't know how, I don't want to say hobbyist, I'm doing it as an academic, but it was just, you learn so much doing it. It was, it was hard, but we are, and you, you have been, and I was trained to be a literary person. We read and we analyze, and then we find ourselves moving into this kind of gray area of, of history and then archival work and then doing this stuff and getting really excited about about it uh, i would never uh, claim to be a historian by any stretch of the imagination but i just you, you can learn so much about this period by seeing what what's echoing out there as they're doing with the lost plays i just think it's wonderful stuff and you it's work amazing. It yeah. is the widow walking. I want to know what all that's about. I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. <laughs> uh, keep the widow walking. The verbatim. The yeah. 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 So waking. Yeah. I'm sorry. Waking. I've read it wrong. Well, yeah. They do kind of keep her walking as well. So it's not, not <laughs> entirely inaccurate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love all this lost place work and, and the work that, that Roz and David and, and Matt Stegall and, and Misha Taramura have been doing yeah. you know, around all this. And there's the, the website itself, um, which is just this extraordinary resource, and then various essays and books that have that have come out, um, you know, in collections, in journals um, and, and some monographs as well. And it's a it's a fascinating thing in in sort of methodological terms, I think, as your, as your question was suggesting, the kind of what do you do with something that's not there or something where there are only traces or. Um, and I sort of got interested in it initially, I think, from from working on repertories and kind of trying to think about, you know, what a lost play within a repertory might have been doing or might have been telling you. So when I was writing my PhD on the children of the Queen's Revels, one of the things that I was interested in was, um, you know, the silver mine, um, one yeah. of their plays, which is lost. Um, and I didn't really do that much with it, but I was kind of interested in, in what kinds of, what sort of approaches you might bring to that kind of problem. And then obviously a few years later, all of the work on the lost place database emerged. Um, so the Heat the Widow Waking material, this is a collaboration with Emma Whipday. Um, and it came out of us teaching together at King's. Um, so Emma was with us on a, a short-term contract um, a couple of years before she got her job at, at Newcastle. Um, and we had a little bit of funding available in the department for creative projects, a creative seed fund. And we were sort of interested in, in lost plays in various ways, but also interested in um, uh, practices research, which I'd been doing a bit of mainly through editorial projects like the Richard Bream edition. And Emma had been doing some amazing work sort of in and around her, her PhD work on domestic drama. Um, so we got a little bit of money from the, um, from the department at King's to think about Keep the Widow Waking. And the other reason I was interested in Keep the Widow Waking is that it's a, it's a lost play that was based on a, a set of real life events. Um, so it seems to have been a double plot play the full title is something like 
the late murderer in Whitechapel or keep the widow waking. Ah. Um, and it's so the, the kind of main, well, probably what was the, the well, one of the plots, we don't know whether they're a main plot and subplot because we don't have the, the whole thing. Um, so we don't know what the structure was precisely, but one of the plots seems to have focused on a case in Whitechapel in which a young man killed his mother. Um, the other seems to have focused on basically a fortune hunter mistreating um, a widow. Um, and they were both real life cases. So there are various records relating to the widow, Anne Elston, um, and the, the young man who preyed on her um, in various courts. Um, so in the Consistory Court of London, and then in the um, Court of Star Chamber, there are, were other things in the Middlesex sessions as well. It was this incredibly complex kind of case. Um, but what happened was that this, um, this young man, Tobias Audley, um, and a group of, of Confederates, as they tend to call them in lawsuits, um, basically preyed on, on Anne Elston. They got her and one of her friends um, encountered them in a tavern um, and basically got them drunk or got Anne drunk, um, giving her aquavitae, basically kind of strong liquor um, and moving her from tavern to tavern. Um, and eventually getting her to, to give some kind of consent to a marriage with, with Tobias Audley. Um, and she doesn't seem to have done much more than, than make a noise, basically. Oh. And, and they'd managed to procure a wedding license and, and, they, and they sort of put these things through. And as soon as they've got the, the, the consent um, in very strong inverted commas, they, they dump her at home. Um, and then there are a series of lawsuits over this. Um, he attempts to prove in the consistory court that they were genu genuinely husband and wife. She resists very strongly. Um, and my colleague, Laura Gowing, um, had been doing a lot of work on the consistory courts and had found Anne Elsden's answer in this suit in the consistory court, um, where she absolutely rejects Tobias wow. Audley's claim to be married to her and makes this really strong statement of her, her own of her resistance to him. Um, but one of the things that seems to have happened is there were ballads about the case and there was a play about the case. Um, while it was going through the Middlesex sessions, um, because there was a, a suit against Audley for abducting her. Um, you then end up with a, a case in Star Chamber, which also involves the play and the ballads in which um, Anne Elston's relatives are suing Tobias Audley, but not just Tobias Audley and his confederates, but also people involved in, in putting this play on. Um, and, and so the accusations are, you know, not only that Tobias Audley abducted and mistreated Anne Elston, but that the playing company um, slandered her by putting on this, this play. Mm -hmm. And there are various um, hints about the play in the depositions, in the other materials, in the Star Chamber suit. And there's also a transcription of, of the ballad that was supposedly sung. Um, what happens in the end with the lawsuits is that, that both Tobias Audley and Anne Elston die while the things are still in process and, and the whole thing seems to, to kind of grind to a halt. Um, yeah. But we, we've, we, I, I found um, Anne Elston's will as part of the the research around this stuff. Um, and again, there she she doesn't even mention Tobias Audley. You know, she 
only gives her her earlier married name, Anne Elsden. She very carefully doles out her property. She um, signs every page with her mark. Um, so again, she's kind of trying to, I think, keep control of her property and her integrity at this point. Um, so Emma and I were interested in this as a kind of, as a, like an early form of verbatim theatre or, or something that has, it poses a kind of analogous case to verbatim theatre. Mm -hmm. And so we used our bit of money to pay for some actors to come and workshop and for Emma and, um, so Emma writes plays as well. So um, we got Emma and- I'm sorry, yeah, Emma, Emma- Emma Whipday, sorry. Yeah, yes. My colleague, um, and another playwright to yep. write verbatim pieces based on transcriptions of the legal materials. So yes. we had a transcription of Anne Elston's own deposition, uh, own answer in the case that Audley brought against her, which is something that the original playwrights wouldn't have had access to. Right. Um, and then the various depositions from the Star Chamber case. And we transcribed a load of material. We did a, um, a transcribathon kind of thing at King's with, with graduate students, um, put together this material for the playwrights. And then the event itself, we, um, we staged these scenes. We had Laura Gowing talking about the the Elston case, um, we talked about verbatim theatre and we had some um, practitioners of verbatim theatre come and come and talk. And so the essay we ended up writing came out of that workshop and the essay um, talks about how you can use practices research for thinking about um, lost plays. Um, and so no, not Excellent. thinking you can reconstruct it, but yeah. thinking about what, what working with those materials might enable you to do so part of the essay is thinking about keep the widow waking as, as domestic drama um and thinking about it as verbatim drama of a kind thinking about what the playwrights might have been doing with their sources yeah. um and looking at something like the like the witch of edmonton um which i'd done a lot of work on and emma had worked on as well which was written by most of the same group of playwrights and whether yeah. that might give us analogies for thinking about the the kind of play that Keith the Widow Waking might have been um yeah. but I, I think we we sort of raise more questions than we provide answers oh well that's is fun anyway it's just wonderful to speculate Lucy you have put out a flood of research in the uh range of re very recent range that uh I I just think it's just so impressive you also are involved with um societies and one of them i wanted to ask you about is the marlowe society and i wanted to talk yes. with you just a bit about marlowe uh you have and i have uh there's a special place in i think our hearts for that old uh, that bad boy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean my interest in marlowe is that it, it connects with all sorts of of bits of my research so you know he he wrote for a children's company um so Dido Queen of Carthage was performed by the the children of the chapel yeah. um and I'm interested in that um but there's interesting records of the revival of his plays in the, the 1630s um which I've written on and also I guess kind of broader things about how you how you read Marlowe how you interpret him um so I I wrote a thing about Edward II and um, a few years back that was thinking specifically about sound. Um, and I've had a little kind of strand of, of my research that's been interested in, in sort of music and sound. Um, 
thanks actually partly to Richard Dutton, who sort of ages ago commissioned me to write something on an overview on music and sound for a companion volume. And I've sort of kept kept a bit in touch with that that work. And that actually partly relates to teaching. Um, so I I teach on the module here at King's that we for third year students, so final year undergraduates, that we do in collaboration with Shakespeare's Globe. Um, and one of the things on that module is to get students thinking about theatrical contexts. Um, and one of the things they have is a, a session on, on music, usually with a, with a Globe practitioner. Um, so I'm often encouraging students to think about, to not just think about the words on the page, but to, I, mean, I sometimes say to them, you know, what we're going to do in this module is read the, read the entire play um so you know stage directions and all and kind of yeah read the stage directions as carefully as we read the the rest well i wanted to give a nod to the marlowe society of america because i have some rights of memory in that kingdom i uh they they uh the the people there received me as a graduate student and helped me along very very much and i'm thinking of uh connie uh, Kuriyama, I'm not even sure, uh, and uh, Sarah Dietz uh, at uh, South Florida. And there are other people there who I've been in contact with uh, over the years, not so much. I was in Japan a lot of that time, but I have this extraordinarily, um, I would just say loving memory. It made me feel part of things at a very special time. And uh, so good for the Marlowe Society of America. <laughs> it's, it's lovely that you say that because, I mean, I, I went to one of their conferences when I was not very long out of my PhD and, and had a very similar experience. And I think one of the things that, that the Marlowe Society of America has done very well is to be a, a home for, for early career scholars. Um, and, and we've been trying to, um, trying to build on that in the last um, couple of years. So we had a a panel at um, this year's MLA on intersectional Marlowe, which was thinking about issues around race and gender and class. Oh, um, good. And we're trying to, to to sponsor kind of more work in oh, those good. kinds of areas. I, I, I will keep an eye out. And uh, because you're, there's a strength, well, you're also with the Malone Society. And so in my search for uh, the afterlife of Christopher Marlowe, I, I made it to the Bodleian and to the Malone collection, and he famously put together an edition. Uh, not, not before I knocked over all of the pencils on the desk of the, <laughs> of, of the guardian of the gate, the, uh, the woman who was there, uh, who was just absolutely, absolutely certain that I did not belong in that. Uh, and uh, I love the Bodleian. I've always had wonderful experience working with everyone but that first person uh, i don't think that happens anymore but the uh, in fact i know it doesn't yeah. but uh, but i was so nervous and you know to walk in and you go up to the duke of humphreys and you're like oh my goodness i do not belong here you know i, I belong in a barn but not here but it was wonderful yeah. i got to see the collection and you're with the malone society and my my do those publications come into play very very often when you're doing this type of research. Yeah, and one, one of my favorite things about Malone Society is the, the editions of, of manuscript plays that the society has produced over a really long period. So, yeah. um, I mean, I guess the most prominent of them would be the, the Malone Society's edition of the Thomas More manuscript, which has gone through, yeah. unusually for Malone Society edition, has gone through kind of multiple, multiple impressions and editions. Um, and 
and yeah, there are lo- lots of other manuscript plays, yeah. um, particularly manuscripts that have playhouse connections. So things like there's an edition of, of the Believe As You List yeah. manuscript um, played by Philip Massinger, which has this, you know, extraordinary kind of textual history that's originally written to be a play about contemporary Spanish or not not very far off contemporary Spanish politics. Yeah. Which yeah. Massinger gets told, no, you can't do that. It's dangerous yeah. matter and has to, to relocate it to the ancient world. Um, yeah. And, and the manuscript has all sorts of kind of interesting things. And, and I like that the work that the Milan Society's done in, in making it possible for scholars who don't have access to those libraries on a regular basis, or if at all, um, you know, to do work with, with manuscripts. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, as I say, it's something I'm... Well, I, I, along, I, I with, yeah, along with that, you also uh, work as a consultant uh, in some capacity, or you are a member of the architecture research group at the Shakespeare at Shakespeare's Globe, and that's the modern, that's now Globe, and now the Globe. steering group yeah. of the uh, London uh, Renaissance Sem- Seminar. But I mean, getting involved with architecture, I just this stuff just fascinates me, and I feel, of course, like a neophyte. But when you know, talking to, I spoke with Heather Knight of the uh, of Mola on on this series, mm-hmm. and I've you know, worked with. Uh, uh, some with Andy Kesson and, and of course Holger Syme and, and other names I could uh, throw out there but this, it's just so much fun to think mm-hmm. about the architecture although uh, you know I'm I don't, but there you are working with these uh, folks it's at the globe so yes I was incredibly lucky um, that Farah Karim Cooper um, who's an academic at the globe who's now the, the co-director co-director of their education section yeah. um she's in charge of higher education and research that um yeah. she asked me to to get involved with the architecture research group um right at the point when they were starting to work on the project to build an indoor playhouse um so she she invited a few of us i think to be involved at that point um so not just me but people like like sarah Dustiger, who'd been doing a phd on on um shakespeare's uses of the two playhouses um in tandem and has written an excellent book, um, Shakespeare's Two Playhouses. Um, so we sort of got involved in the architecture research group at that time, alongside these incredibly um, well-established, um, you know, theatre historians who had an interest in playhouse architecture. So people like like Andrew Gurr, like, like Frank Hildy. Um, and getting to be part of those discussions was, was absolutely fascinating because you have the, you have people like, um, Peter McCurdy, who was actually building the thing. You have John Greenfield, who's the architect, um, and really working through things in detail and thinking about what the the evidence from the early modern materials is. Sort of, you know, what what's actually practical. Um, and there were various decisions around, you know, should there be an attempt at at trying to recreate a kind of authentic sort of idea of what the black second black Friday theatre might have been like yeah. or should the project be going for something that was more like a, a sort of archetypal indoor playhouse and actually that was the decision that was taken in the end partly because we have so little evidence for the interiors of the indoor playhouses and one of the key sources is the thing that's known as the Worcester College drawings um which are late, um, they're probably restoration, probably by, by John Webb, um, but they seem to be a design for a playhouse on a, on a pre-Civil War model. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 
you know, it that would have had to have been a major source, whichever kind of approach you went for. And I think in the end, or certainly my feeling was that there was, in a way, a, a sort of more integrity in building something that's relatively close structurally to the best source that we have, yeah. rather than trying to imagine something and then build it. And of course, we already have the Blackfriars at Stanton, um, which is, you know, a very successful in, in Virginia, in the US. In, in Virginia, Virginia yes. US, which is a very successful attempt at, yes. at reconstructing what we think the second Blackfriars might be like. Yes. Um, so, so what we've ended up with at the Globe in San Wanamaker Playhouse is a sort of archetypal kind of indoor theatre of the early modern period, mm -hmm. which is probably closer to the Salisbury Court Playhouse or the Cockpit Playhouse yeah. than it is to the second Blackfriars Playhouse. Um, but there was just so much that we don't know about what the, the interior of something like the Blackfriars would have been. And the Blackfriars is particularly complicated because it, it was a conversion. Um, and when James Burbage bought the property from William Moore, you know, he bought this big room that was subdivided into seven rooms and he seems to have taken out the subdivisions, but we don't know whether he would have used the, the original interior of the parliament chamber, which probably had a hammer beam roof and sort of um, looked in quite a particular way. And you'll see drawings of the, you know, attempts at reconstructing the second Blackfriars Playhouse, which will have it with this big hammer beam ceiling, but we don't know. I mean, there could well have been a full ceiling. Yeah. It may have looked very unlike those, those drawings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, these repurposed spaces, I've looked a lot into this uh, around St. Paul's, also at the um, yeah. uh, St. John's Clerkenwell recently. Uh, in fact, somewhere it, within the next 400 years, I, I'm, I'm going to have an article on that. It, I wrote the thing <laughs> in the 14th century. This pandemic has slowed up some, some yeah, of the, uh, and uh, so uh, I'm, I would like that to, because I've worked a lot on that. And uh, th these, the speculation is, uh, is fun also. And also I think that we can gain, I, I know that you're supposed to have historical evidence for everything, but there's certain things you can, just like with lost plays and so forth, you know, uh, you, you can track it. Like, you, I don't know what it is, electrons or something, you know, where they've been. And you kind of know something about the uh, entity, uh, and and you can speak about these things uh, through. Um, I, I think good, you know, it, it, there is some empiricism there, uh, yeah. and um, and and that sort of thing. Um, okay, I think it's partly also partly also being clear about where the evidence stops and where the speculation maybe isn't quite the right word, but where where the extrapolation begins. Right. So one of the things I was interested in when thinking about casting wasn't necessarily being able to say, okay, well, based on that roles that we do know about so-and-so played so-and-so, but saying, okay, well, if we put this actor with this particular track record, you know, if he was playing that character, what would he have brought to that role? Or yes. particularly with boy actors, well, you know, if we cast it this way around, it might have been like this or if we cast it this way around it might have been like this so rather than necessarily saying you know john thompson played desdemona which on the evidence that we have we don't know um 
you know, thinking, well, okay, if he played Desdemona, this, if he played Amelia, this. Yes. And it's sort of like cricket, isn't it? That sometimes you would, who was saying this? Was it Hoger or something? But there would be times when you would not want to go in and play the lead. You know, you, you do it night or afternoon after af afternoon. Uh, and, you know, at some point you'd want someone to come in and play it and you could play a, a lesser role uh, and, and take a bit of a break. Yeah, well, I'm coming at this from a, I think Holger and I are working on, I've been thinking about some similar questions, working with different sets of materials. Um, and Holger's been thinking about, um, about line, not line counts, word counts. And word counts are more accurate than, than line counts. Uh. Um, and, and then looking at the, the 18th century and, and the careers of people like Garrett. Um, I've been looking at these cast lists from the 1620s and 30s. And there is evidence that, that some plays don't include a role for one of the leading actors. Um, so there's a play called The, the Sodded Citizen, um, which doesn't seem to have a role for Joseph Taylor. Um, there's another play from around that period where another leading actor seems not to have a role. Um, and so when I heard Holger talking about some of this stuff and saying that, you know, that, that he thinks there was a, a system where you, you, you take the pressure off the lead actor by not always having them in right. the biggest role. Actually, that tallies with some of this information from the 1620s and uh. 30s that, that there was some, you know, there's a, this play without a Joseph Taylor role. And maybe this isn't that, you know, the playwright didn't like Joseph Taylor or the playwright didn't um, didn't want to write a role for him, but actually because they were, they were giving Taylor you know, slack within the repertory that he could, that he could have evenings when, or afternoons rather, when he wasn't performing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a joke that we have, and I think I told Holger this, that, uh, and it's one that my student uh, a few years, some years ago uh, got me on because I talked about how easy it was to play Caesar. You know, the, you're off, you're off to the pub early. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then she said, no, you have to be the ghost. You have to come back. I've forgotten completely about that. I suppose another actor could do it or you could, you know, but uh, nope, it's not that early off to the pub. But uh, there you are. Well, Lucy, I, I want to, uh, I, I have to wrap things up right now and get over to a meeting. I, I want to thank you uh, so, uh, so much for joining us here and in our little community in, uh, uh, in Shakespeare. And also, if you could just stay a bit after we finish recording, and it would just a brief, just a bit. And, of course. And, and once again, thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me.